Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, since at least the Middle Ages, food has always been available for sale on the streets of London. Women and men, boys and girls, have seemingly sold everything that can be eaten, from shellfish and fried fish, to baked potatoes and baked pies, to handfuls of fruit and cups of milk and many other, even stranger things. Street vendors were far from being the most respectable members of London society, either in the late 16th century, the late 19th century, or any of the periods in between, that they were an absolutely vital link in feeding the growing urban population, the final link of a chain that extended from the coasts, ports, gardens of Kent and Surrey, and from the udders of suburban cows until finishing its journey in the customer's mouth. In his new book, Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London, Charlie Tavener chronicles the daily life of the street vendors over three centuries, following them as they make their way with baskets and carts through the urban landscape. This enables him to not only reimagine a vital part of London's history, but to reconsider the process of urbanization and modernization. Charlie Tavener is a research fellow at Trinity College Dublin, a social historian of cities and food. He was in a previous life a business and an agricultural journalist. Charlie Tavener, welcome to Historically Thinking. Fabulous to be here. Thank you very much. So I guess we'll talk later about how being a business and agricultural journalist influenced this book. Imagine I could see it's sort of the experience and fingerprints all over it. But this is a book about, it's about a business. It's about a, centuries of a sort of type of business and one intimately connected with agriculture. But we're not going to talk about that yet. As you make clear, the sources of who hawkers were are very iffy. Uh, they're based on middle class or gentlemen, make, taking long walks through the city, making observations which may or may not be valid, or they're by court cases or whatever. So I think there's the idea we have, we should talk about the prototypical vision of the London fishwife, which is that it seems to be the, that is the vision of the hawker. But then going from the fishwife to who were they really? Are they the lowest? They can't be the lowest of the lower class, but where are they? Do they fit into the new middling type in the 16th century? Where, who are they? Where do they come from? Yeah, I think I talk about in the book, one of the sections I term all sorts of Londoners, and that's because hawkers were a really diverse bunch of people. Many of them were very poor, really scraping by doing other forms of menial work, things like sweeping the streets, collecting old bones and rubbish or later on holding up sandwich boards and signs in the streets, basic forms of work. And others were much closer to the kind of shopkeepers, people who had a bit more respectability, respectability about them and a range of complex kind of skills in trades like retail. So you've got a you've got a wide range of abilities and skill within there. And what that means is you've got people kind of work doing this work very occasionally, and you've got people that's doing this work kind of full time. So the job itself can be very different. Mm -hmm. And it meant also that then there were very different sorts of people involved in the street trade. And one of the big transitions we see is, is around the gender of street sellers. So you start off early in the early in the period that I'm interested in, the late 16th and early 17th century, when the street trades were dominated by women. 
perhaps the vast majority, something between two thirds and four fifths of street sellers may have been women. And that's the era when you get the caricature of the fishwife as the prototypical street vendor. The fishwife, for those who aren't entirely aware, is a kind of hard drinking, coarse mouthed, boisterous kind of woman who sells fish or shellfish on the streets of the city. And she's particularly associated with Billingsgate Fish Market. And Billingsgate later becomes a, a kind of a slang term for kind of rude language. And speaking in Billingsgate is kind of crudeness. So at this era, you do have the kind of the stereotype having some root in reality. Street traders were connected to the idea of the fishwife. And gradually, as the centuries move on, more and more men become involved in the street trades. And that's for varying reasons. And it's partly because you've just got a kind of growth in the kind of poor working population, those who are looking out for forms of casual labour and more men get sucked into this. Street trading seems a decent way of keeping ahead above water. And the other thing you have going on is that as the street trade grows and expands, some parts of it become a bit more lucrative. One of those areas is the trade in fresh milk. And men play a bigger role in, in that trade, particularly in its upper echelons. Those who maybe have a few cows themselves or employ others to sell milk on the streets. They are the milkmen of their day. And men, as often happens in a kind of in any industry that's becoming more capitalized, it's becoming more sophisticated and more complex. What we often see in this period of history is men playing a bigger role within that and perhaps pushing out kind of women over time. So that's a good example of the different sorts of people you have within the street trade. So this is, we can barely even speak then about street, there's so many types of street vendors. It's almost an ineffective generalization because we can have people who, and it's, you have some wonderful photographs in this. And there's a, I love this one picture I could put on the wall of a late 19th century baked potato vendor with his oven. He looks so proud. You know, and obviously this is, you can see there's a, I almost believe that he has a sense of vocation looking at the picture. Pictures lie, but you can see, you can imagine some of these guys, they've been doing it for three generations. They are as much a, this is as much a pride of of their place in society and the nobility of their labor as any other merchant. And yet there are other people that can grab a basket and sell some oysters and keep the wolf from the door and can keep poverty at bay for a little longer. So there's such a wide variety of occupations within street vending. Yeah, that's the beauty of the street trades is that they are capacious. Mm -hmm. You can, as you say, do it very simply with a few pence. You can go and buy some oranges or some oysters at the market, put them in the basket or other vessel and find a ready market for them. And you might just do that very occasionally. Or you can be a highly specialized trader, a bit like that baked potato man who has had to invest in the apparatus that he needs. This baked potato wagon that you're describing, Al, is essentially, it's a wheelbarrow and it's got a big oven placed on top. It's like a wheelbarrow with a cast iron oven on top of it. It's a tremendous apparatus. And it's decorated as well. He's got bits of, he's got different spuds, Uh which are spiked on top as a form of decoration. There are also some kind of lanterns attached. Uh So it's going to light up as well. It's got different drawers, perhaps for potatoes being cooked at different amounts and moved up through the oven. So this is a really sophisticated piece of kit, which would have potentially cost a lot of money if he's bought it. He may also be renting it. So there's some kind of investment here to, you know, to get involved in the trade. And also it's going to take a degree of skill to manage that stock, preparing those potatoes. It seems relatively simple, but you've got to make sure the stuff is fresh, make sure you've got to make a decent margin on it. You've got to also know where are the good spots to go and sell your potatoes. You're not going to just 
go and stand outside of a location that's just dead all day long. You're going to go to a busy hub in that era, somewhere like outside a railway station, or one of the bridges where people are rushing across on a daily basis. So these are all skills and that people have developed and also that are benefiting from accrued experience. So this is by no means a simple business at all. So as I make clear, I think in the introduction, the street vendors are a extraordinarily important link in the chain of getting London fed. And getting London fed is actually quite a naughty problem, especially as the population grows. So it's not just it's not just of antiquarian interest to see what street vendors were selling. It's an indication of what Londoners are eating and how well they're eating and how much money they have. But it's also just a simple question of getting enough protein and calories in the mouths of this rapidly expanding urban population. Back when I'll put in the show notes when we were talking about England after the Black Death, I remember coming across the research about rabbits being taken by cart into London. Now, some of those, that was in 1340 and 1360. And there's a big, big industry in medieval Norfolk of growing rabbits for sale in the urban market, which is quite extraordinary. That's already happening at that time. But by the time you get to it, it's like that, but only more. So let's talk about the importance of street vendors in nourishing London and and the sort of variety of stuff that they use to feed London. Yeah. The history of cities is really intimately connected to the history of food. Yes. Because one of the big shifts, obviously, that happens when populations become more urbanized, they're detached from the land and they're not involved in in, in subsistence agriculture and growing food for themselves they're reliant on people supplying them so where people get food the markets and shops that they use are really important questions for historians of towns and cities and street sellers play a really important role within this really major development in london you just the scale is enormous and it's hard to fathom at this time in history and london is ahead of almost anywhere else in, in the world at this stage you go from a population of broader London of about 200,000 people on the accession of James I to that's, six and a half, seven million. That's 1600-ish, I should say. Yeah, yeah, the turn of the 17th century. And then towards the end of the 19th century, you've got six to seven million people. So this is really large growth, just in, in relative terms, but also just in absolute numbers. It's massive and all these people need to be fed. And throughout this period in, in, in English history, the staple foods remain relatively constant. People are getting most of their calories, most of their sustenance from bread, from meat and from beer. And interestingly, street sellers don't sell those on the whole. Those trades, because they're so important to people's basic living, are very highly regulated. Drinks sold through alehouses and later public houses. Bread sold through bakers whose prices and things like that are very constrained. Meat, The meat trades are very lucrative and butchers play a very important role. And when street sellers are involved in those, it seems often they're selling second-rate stuff, so offcuts of meat, stale bread, and things of that kind. But there's this whole other side to people's food consumption, which is very important, which is all these other foods that play nutritionally and also in terms of taste a really important role in, in their food lives. So hawkers are really important for selling raw ingredients like vegetables, like fish, things like fresh fruit and also milk, things that are tend to be highly perishable, which go fast and therefore they need to find a very ready market. And because they're perishable, they also tend to be produced quite close 
to where they're consumed. And the quickest, easiest way of getting those to, to people's doors is through the fast and flexible distribution of street sellers. But there's another side of this too, is that hawkers were selling lots of ready-to-eat food. You mentioned in your, in your introduction, things like baked potatoes and, and pies, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are lots of little morsels, like I said, fruit, pies and sausages, cooked things like hot peas. Later on, the, in the 19th century, the menu of ready-to-eat foods expands massively and you get all sorts of sweet treats like tarts and cakes, all sorts of pickled delights and even things like sandwiches too. So there's this enormous menu that develops and part of that is driven by the need for people to eat outside the home, which is connected as well to London's growth and its urbanisation because as the city expands, people are often working further away from where they lived which makes getting home to to pick up some food throughout the day difficult. And the other side to it as well is that as London expands, there's more pressure on space. So people's, people's domestic room for preparing food is ever more limited. So eating on the street becomes an everyday necessity. This is not drive in, but walk by food. And it's fast food, but it's in much greater variety than modern drive through fast food. I love the cups of milk and the way they're associated with, first of all, they very sensibly keep cows in the parks like Green Park. And then when you go to tour the park and walk the paths, you can get a cup of milk. I thought, isn't this like bucolic, rustic thing, this imagination somehow drinking milk while going into this bit of the countryside that's within increasingly urban London. It's a lovely juxtaposition, which shows you something of the sensibility of the time but handfuls of fruit before you go into the various amusement gardens instead of candy. Whelks as well as oysters and clams. And the it is a dizzying variety of natural foods rather than just mm. prepared foods. I mean, it's in some ways you feel quite, it feels quite enviable. Yes. You listen to this bunch of kind of fresh stuff being served in the streets of the city, none of it hyper-processed or uh, that we're used to today. So lots of that, that sounds wonderfully idyllic. And actually things like the fresh fruit, I think is very commendable. And one of the interesting things, I think, one of the forgotten street foods of the present, if you go to lots of cities around the world where street vending is very important, you can find loads of fresh fruit being mm-hmm. vended. Sometimes already cut up for you, sometimes they have little bags that you can then take away and then nibble on. And that's wonderful and nutritious, good. I think that's definitely something that should be probably encouraged. It's a very good thing. And in this time in history, a little handful of fruit for a, for a few pence is an affordable little luxury for many people. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can afford it all the time on a regular basis. Not everyone is hanging outside the playhouses and scoffing oranges as they watch the latest production. But you can, even if you're relatively poor, afford some fresh fruit, like some strawberries or cherries, particularly in their season when there's a big glut of kind of fruit coming in and prices seem to crash. This is also bound up with agriculture and the seasons. Yes, because and also it's very interesting how at the beginning of this period, you indicate that fruit is coming from France. Fruit is coming from abroad. And that gradually as demand increases and people, as farmers see a market, you have Kent becoming the Garden of Kent and you have the, or the Garden of London, really. And you have fruit going into Surrey and and I guess into the, into Middlesex at, at the time. And as I said, suburban cows, dairy production goes closer and closer to the city of London. Could you briefly describe that process? Yeah, London's size and growth stimulates all sorts of industries. And one of those is gardening and and orchards. And 
And an interesting kind of part of this tale is that while it sounds also quintessentially English and Kent as the Garden of England and all these market gardens which are stretching along either side of the Thames producing all sorts of delicate vegetables like asparagus and lettuce and peas which are very careful and high-end and then are shipped down to London for the, um, for the, the wealthy market and the wealthy consumers that are there. All of this is actually based on drawing on foreign expertise. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this market gardening d- develops from a group of immigrants from northern France that, that come over in the late 16th and early 17th century and start doing forms of gardening. And there they start a kind of tradition of market gardening around London, which becomes enormously influential and lasts right through to the second half of the 19th century, really, when the pressure for space just becomes too much. And also at that time, you have things like the railways that allow produce to be imported much more kind of quickly and rapidly and cheaply from further afield, from areas where production is cheaper. Because, of course, in a growing city, those areas around the the outskirts are prime building land. So eventually those gardens get swallowed up. But for a time, London was very much a garden city. It was surrounded by agriculture and growing space right on its boundaries. So you have this wonderful blurring between countryside and city that's taking place. And it's one of the neat, one of the examples of the neat things that the street sellers let us examine is the way that uh, these hard and fast divisions, such as country and city, nature versus city, get mixed up in the realities of, of London experience. It's also a nice indication of how the urban creates the rural and how cities are really good at creating farms where there had not been farms of that kind before. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing to think that, so we've just been talking about gardens, but also the dairy industry. The largest and most intensive dairy farms in England at this time are on the outskirts of London. You have in the early 19th century, a, a farm of five, 600, 700 cows in <gasps> Islington, which is where I live still. <laughs> Enormous numbers, which would make it not huge in North American terms, but it would be in the top few percent of skies of dairy farms still today. It, that that's, requires a huge investment in buildings and feed, but also just the animals themselves. This is a huge operation. For non-Londoners, for non-people from outside Britain, I'll put a link to Islington on, in the show notes so you can see how incongruous it is to think of a 600-herd dairy operation in, in Islington of all places. There are still remnants. Richard Laycock, who was the farmer who owned that farm, which if you want to get really nerdy, if you want to have a look on Google Maps, is was around the area of Highbury in Islington Station. And nearby there is Laycock Street. So you can still see a little bit of a little scrap of that past hanging on. From the very beginning, from Alfred the Great onwards, towns in England are created in part by creating markets. It is the medieval way of creating a town as you set up a market. You, you give permits, you encourage economic activity. So we should be quite clear that street vendors are not in markets. They're on the street and the market is something else. So there's an opposition between the street vendor and the market in one sense and market privileges, especially for a town who's gone to all the trouble of creating all these tax breaks and trying to get people into the market. Now we've got street vendors. Yet at the same time, there's also harmony between street vendors and markets. So this is a, you could write an entire book about this. So in five minutes, could you explain the sort of the sort of the double-edged nature of the street vendor and the market? 
Yeah, what we have to start with is the ideal type, really. In the medieval and early modern kind of tradition, the perfect situation is that you have all buying and selling constrained in fixed locations. This idea of an open, a common, a public market where all the produce comes to and nothing else is allowed to manipulate the prices apart from how much there is. That creates a just price, a fair price. And also it means that the quality is all being checked because it's all being done in public and market officials are there. So this is what's meant to happen. And London has, as it grows, a number of formal marketplaces that are established. Places that people might be familiar with their names of like Billingsgate, the Great Fish Market, Leadenhall, where's the market for all sorts of different foods. And Cheapside is the most famous of all, the, the great general market, which is a long street, which is near St. Paul's Cathedral, which was divided into different sections for different sorts of produce. And these marketplaces sprung to life on certain days each week between certain hours where all trading was meant to take place. And over time, this becomes a bit more complicated because you get the introduction of things like shops where trading is taking place initially just around the fringes of marketplaces, but these shops then spread throughout the city. And then cities have to realise that in order to feed their growing populations, that's much more important than holding fast to any particular kind of sets of ideals. And it becomes even more complicated in somewhere like London that's spreading out in all sorts of directions. So those kind of ideals about how things are bought and sold gradually get frayed. Certain people are allowed privileges in order to fulfill a useful role in feeding the city. So you get retailers like butchers and fishmongers allowed to trade not just in the marketplaces, but in their own shops, often away from those markets. And then from around the middle of the 16th century in London, the chronology differs from place to place. In lots of European cities, for example, street vendors are playing a more prominent role at an even earlier stage. You get these people who are coming to the markets to buy small amounts of produce, to carry it, to sell elsewhere, usually around the streets of the city. And these are the street vendors for me. They are people selling small packages of food beyond the markets and shops that constitute the formal side of the economy. And they have an ambiguous position within urban life because on the one hand, they are technically illegal. They're doing something that's called regrating, which is one of the classic classic crimes of early modern economic regulation. Regrating is an old word, which means buying to sell again, which is a big no-no. It was proscribed in a 1552 Act of Parliament which said buying to sell again was not allowed. It was one of the kind of things that was prohibited according to one of London's laws of the market. And which seems very strange to us in many ways because we're used to a free market in the sense of people can buy and sell wherever they want to in an uninhibited way and that should benefit everyone. But we have to remember that medieval and early modern life is very much based on place and, contr- and people being part of a kind of clear, coherent community. And a marketplace is at the heart of that kind of community. And the market rules, such as they were, they encourage free trade, but within the rules of that particular kind of community, it was always going to control in that way. So it meant that street sellers had this, like I say, ambiguous position because they were technically illegal, but they were also playing quite a useful role because as those old market rules started to fray a little, the cities became 
to grow. The markets weren't necessarily in the right places anymore as London explodes its medieval boundaries, goes out beyond its old medieval walls into new suburbs. Suddenly, people who carry food to these new districts are actually quite useful. So attitudes do gradually change over time. Because they're providing food to these new districts, which are sometimes often poorer districts, I would guess. New markets aren't being legislated to feed these new suburbs. They get left behind. Do new markets get legislated? When does that stop? When does the whole sort of modern, quote unquote, retail shops plus street vendors sort of paradigm, when does that take over? When do markets stop being promulgated? Yeah, I mean, there's a big shift that goes on in London's marketplaces too. As they begin the period that I'm talking the late Elizabethan era, the late 16th century, as the markets are the place where people go and do all their shopping, right? This is the primary site of urban retail. And over time, new avenues open up, you get more shops, you get street vendors, things like that. And also what's happening is that the new markets are not being established in areas that they need to be. So so there are lots of parts of London that are not very well served. In the middle of the 17th century, for example, you have this whole great eastern suburb of Hackney and Stepney, which is in the eastern boundaries of London. They've got about 40,000 people living there and they've got to walk several miles into London, into the heart of London to do their basic food shopping. So one of the big revolutions that has to happen, it's something that's spurred on by the fire of London in 1666, though the process does begin before, is a reorganisation in the markets. The markets are generally allowed to open for longer, for more hours. New markets are created. And also the people who are allowed to buy and sell are expands. And those old rules about regrating are gradually weakened. But even with the kind of new foundation of markets beyond London's old core, the capital C city, the square mile, for people who know that terminology, London is becoming much more than that. It's becoming this great sprawl as it swallows up surrounding villages and becomes a greater conurbation. And markets are founded in those areas. And one people might know is Covent Garden Market, which you can still go and visit as a tourist destination rather than a place where food is bought and sold on a daily basis. Covent Garden was given its official market charter in 1670, and it becomes a real fruit and vegetable and flower selling hub throughout this period. But it's also indicative of another really important shift, which is the mother that are being founded. These former marketplaces are moving away from being retail spaces to wholesale spaces. So what that means in simple terms is that rather than supplying shoppers and housekeepers and servants and residents of London, what they're primarily servicing is other retailers. These markets are places where shopkeepers, where street vendors go and pick up produce and sell it elsewhere, either in their shops or on the streets of the city. So you've got this transition taking place where the formal marketplaces are no longer playing the same role that they used to. Let's talk about the street in Street Vendor. Recently, I heard a new urban theorist say a street is not for traffic. It's certainly not for cars. A street is for economic benefit. And in a way, I can see that in your book, because certainly the street for vendors is their marketplace. And so they have needs and a relationship to the street, which certainly for an American is really difficult to receive. 
because I have a hundred years of car culture in front of me and having that has changed my view of what the street is and what it's for. So to recover that vision of the street and what's for that matter, it's even very different than a car, the much less car centric modern London. Could we, could you recapture the way street vendors see the street? Yeah. Hawkers are a way into an entirely different way of conceiving the street that breaks beyond the very narrow confines that we've become used to. In the last hundred years, car culture has really solidified this one aspect of what a street is, which is as a thoroughfare, a place of traffic and a place of movement and flow. That's movement and flow of people and vehicles and also commodities. That's very nice because even say in a center of London where you know cars are taxed or banned or what have you, it's still, streets are still for flow. They're still for movement, but that's not at all what street vendor sees them as. Absolutely. So you have this one little notion of traffic, which is important to the street. And that's also really important about streets in the past. Streets have always been places of movement. But the point is that they also used to be a place of so much more than that. They were a place that we've talked a little bit about markets already. All the markets initially in medieval and early modern cities took place on the streets. They weren't undercover or in set aside locations that were carefully protected. Traffic mingled with trading in a really wonderful way. Carriages, walkers had to weave between stalls and baskets as they made their way through the city or in on o- market days. Or sheep, at least in Oxford on Ship Street. There was actually Sheep Street where the, they'd bring them in once a week or once a month to be sold. Yeah, London's one of London's most famous markets is Smithfield. In London, we still have a meat market for carcass meat and dead meat here within the city, but it used to be the main livestock market. So you had hundreds of thousands of animals pouring into the city, cattle, sheep, pigs, and also poultry being walked into the city to be bought and sold to feed the urban population. So you, yeah, you've got all these other lots of bodies in the street, a much more kind of complex amount of traffic, and there's not just cars either. And I should say, Americans think of this as being a distant medieval thing, or they do that in London. I've got a picture somewhere around here of sheep being driven down Broad Street in front of City Hall in Philadelphia in like 1908. I don't know where they're going, but it looks completely incongruous. But this was the life of the streets into the 20th century in North America as well as in Britain. And the other aspect to the movement in our modern conception is that this flow of, of traffic and people and commodities should be as frictionless and smooth as possible. And it's very much a capital M modern conception of, of what a street should be. And in the earlier centuries in places like London, but also this is very true, as you point out, in cities all around the world, that movement is often much more difficult for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, it's to do with technology. People were not moving in in kind of cars and closed off boxes, but they were traveling on foot, often carrying stuff, which is very difficult and puts a strain on your bodies. Or they're moving by horsepower transport with all the resultant kind of smells and disruption and noise that often comes with that too. But the other aspect of the kind of difficulty is not everyone can therefore move through the street easily. That's something that's become all too horribly apparent now of recalling that particularly for women, particularly for people of ethnic minority backgrounds, moving through the streets is not a kind of necessarily a simple process if you're going to suffer the attentions of predatory men, for example, or police authorities who may not be happy with your presence or the way that you're occupying the space of the street. And it also comes down to very like basic material concerns too. We all now are very used to relatively well-paved 
street asphalt is something you can roll along quite easily. But until relatively recent history, paving was far from universal. There were different technologies available. There was, you could put cobbles in the street. There are attempts at things like wood blocks that were laid down in the street. There were early forms of tar macadam that were used, but they all had their own kind of weaknesses and they were not applied everywhere and far from it. So in the 1880s, there was a survey done within London, which found that within the core capital C city, the old medieval centre, nearly all the streets were well paved with some form of big kind of blocks, which made traffic easy. The same was also true for about half the streets in Westminster, another of the old kind of cores of the city, but in wider London, less than half of all the streets were paved with anything more than flints and gravel that were pressed into the earth. And you can just imagine how that would have made circulation much more difficult. Just the very simple act of traveling through the streets was not easy. It was full of all sorts of kind of challenge. And the other side to all this is not just about movement. I've just been talking about traffic and flow and movement, but the streets were hubs of business. They were hubs of conversation, play, pleasure. They they were multifunctional spaces in which public and private life mingled together wonderfully well. A neat thing that I think encapsulates this quite well is in how much of this period, home life, domestic life, sprawled onto the street. In many, open, in many ways. Glazing, for example, doesn't take over in London's history until it's not in universally widespread well into the 19th century, which means that sound, chatter, even muck and mess can penetrate the home environment too. So in fact, the street is very hard to pin down and define because those areas are mixing in with areas that we think are quite sharply cut off. And in fact, London is a more kind of complex, messy, difficult space all over. Can we talk now about lighting? Because vendors, street vendors are going to be where there are opportunities to sell things. And that increasingly occurs at night. At the beginning of your history, that's illegal to be really to be out at night much. That's what, you know, but by the end of your story, electricity is already supplanting gaslight. And the streets are brilliantly lit. And there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of nighttime amusements. And that is a business opportunity. So how do vendors change along with urban illumination? Yeah, it's amazing to think that around 1600, say, you still had had to have a reason, a very good reason to be out at night in London after dark. There was... In the medieval city, there was a bell that was rung to signal the nightly curfew. There were gates on the edge of the city that were shut. You weren't, weren't meant to cross those. But then things begin to change. And it's, part, and it's connected to the city growing and it's connected to loosening of the idea of trade as well. It's also connected to forms of entertainment that go on in the evenings as the playhouse and things become more prominent. People have more legitimate reasons to be having fun. Le- leisure time is more important into the evening. And... It's a process that historian Craig Koslowski has called nocturnalization, which I think is a really neat little term for how people are becoming more used to being up and about at night within the city. And hawkers are one aspect of that. They're servicing this nighttime economy with food for people when they're out and about, hanging around outside the gates of the pleasure gardens, for example, the pleasure gardens that spring up in, in the late nineteenth in the early nineteenth century and are places for the middle classes to hang out, enjoy entertainments. 
and hawkers are selling hot snacks and cups of coffee, stuff that people can in, and enjoy and delight from. But another side to this as well that we might is also hard to imagine is how dark the city would have been. And going out at night wasn't encouraged early on. And partly because of that, lighting was pretty minimal. The limit of lighting right at the start of this period was essentially lanterns, little candles inside containers, translucent containers that were hung outside people's doors. And provision for that was down to individual householders. And eventually over time, you get this shift where the city authorities play a much bigger role in in setting up kind of lighting. And you move to a system, a much more modern system that we're used to, where we pay a tax or a rate, and then the city sets up lights. What's interesting, and where there's another of the cases where street sellers help us see the realities of urban life, is that this darkness, this shadowiness, remained prevalent into the 19th century, an era we think of as glitzy, modernizing global London, the center of this vast global empire, much of it's still very dark. And a sign of that is the in we see is in the street markets. These street markets were places where hawkers begin to congregate in the Victorian era. They start as a very kind of informal gatherings. They push their wheelbarrows where they're selling produce from together and meet on regular occasions. They really replace the old kind of formal markets take place and that many of them were extremely busy late into the night particularly on Saturday evenings and in the areas where these markets were hold which tend held which tended to be the poorer neighborhoods of the city the lighting was very limited and so hawkers had to use quite makeshift apparatus in order to illuminate their nighttime trading so that could be very simple like sticking a candle in a kind of cut open turnip or something like that which will that will just flicker there or it might be a naphtha lamp, a liquid kind of fuel that's kind of satellite and burning and has this kind of whispering flame that kind of flickers and, and the faces of the different traders. Another cool thing, I think, that shows this duality of London between rich and poor as well is that liquid fuel is a byproduct of the gas that was used to light the street lamps in the wealthier parts of the city where lighting was much more universal. So you've always got this, to do a pun, this kind of light and shade really within the city between the modernizing glitzy areas that we might get excited about and that play such a prominent role in in London's history and particularly in neighborhoods like the West End. And then also the difficulty and the toughness life for the working majority. The technologies that hawkers use are not just naphtha lanterns, but they are primitive medieval technologies, even long pre-medieval technologies, which they use right up to basically the modern food truck. And they are the basket and the barrow, and they're marvelously adaptable. Could you explain the importance of those two technologies? Yeah, I never thought when I embarked on the research for this book that I spent so much time thinking about baskets and reading books about baskets in Europe and their history. And similarly, wheelbarrows. There's not been an enormous amount of kind of research. There's been a small amount. There's some very interesting little articles that are out there, but they're really important subjects because these are the fundamental tools to, to hawkers work. But also, if you think about it, baskets and wheelbarrows are used by all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. They've had a lowly role in most histories of technology because they're not especially innovative 
at least on the surface. They're not technologically that complex. But if you think about how they're used and the creative ways in which they're used, there's a really important history there that's worth unpicking. I was really inspired, I think, in this by historians of technology, such as David Edgerton in his book, The Shock of the Old, which I really recommend people to have a look at. And it certainly changed my view of of kind of tools and technology. And historians of technology now think very much about how technology is, it's not about necessarily the great inventions or the innovations, but it's really important how things are used. That's what's fascinating. And if we focus on that, we actually start to flip the picture a little and see that street sellers and people like them were using these very simple objects in creative, ingenious ways for very long periods of time. So a technology can be brilliant because it endures, because it remains very useful. And the, but the wheelbarrow is perhaps the, the best example of this because wheelbarrows have been around for an enormous amount of time. They have been found to be used on building sites in, in the classical world in ancient Greece and Rome. And they remain a really wonderful, sensible tool for carrying kind of heavyish loads, but without kind of straining your body. And the street sellers start to use them around the late 17th century. And it's potentially because London is growing at this time and they need to carry the produce they're selling over a bigger area. And it's much easier to push it along the ground than to carry it. And over time, these wheelbarrows don't stay the same. They may initially have used exactly the ones that people were using to cart around bricks on building sites, but they start to realize that, oh, actually I can make little alterations. So you perhaps put on some leather straps that attach to the arms of the barrows, loop over your shoulders to, to help ease the weight as you're pushing it around. Hawkers also put a little shop board over the mouth of the barrow so they can use it as a kind of portable counter for trading some of them if you're selling hot produce might put like the baked potato vendor we were talking about earlier some kind of oven or other warming apparatus on top as another form of kind of innovation and then into the late 18th and 19th century the barrows change again and they the arms extend and they almost get flipped around in some senses because they become miniature carts that are pulled by donkeys and sometimes ponies, but usually donkeys to pull um, produce around. It's lovely because the donkeys come later. That's, I guess, a sign of the even the greater wealth of street vendors as a population's wealth expands. But the donkeys are part of modernization of street vending, <laughs> which I think is delightful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the neat things. It's donkey donkeys have always been around. It's not like someone had to invent the no. donkey for street sellers to use them, but there was that they found the use for them. And it's and part of it was because they were probably relatively cheap. A respectable shopkeeper with a formal shop and a swinging sign with glazed windows and perhaps little trade cards that he could send around to people might have a big cart and a horse, perhaps a pony, that they would use to push their produce around around the city. It might even be a cart that's painted neatly or decorated. But a street vendor may not be able to afford those trappings. They're not making as much money. But a donkey is their way of using a similar form of kind of technology, getting the same advantages out of it. And again, it's probably bound up with London's expansion and London's growth. These people are traveling bigger distances and donkeys become useful. And it's also linked to the growth of the street trades too. As they expand, you get this greater stratification where you have people who are able to afford little extras that make their job a little bit easier. People will still be doing what they've always done, which is 
with a few pence going with a basket to a market and picking up some produce and putting it under their arm and walking on through the city and calling out as they do. But those who have the means are able to change and develop the trade. Go into baked potatoes and and hauling a cast iron baked potato oven around is a lot easier when you have a donkey yeah. to do it for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so the technologies of the street trade opens up new forms of trading. And also, and ultimately, that has a knock on the food culture of the city because baked potatoes are one of the most common street foods of Victorian London. And it wouldn't be possible if you were carrying around that oven yourself. It just would be impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhat dangerous to bounce on top of your head, even in <laughs> an era without safety and health standards. Hawkers, as you write, are best known for their cries, and you say all the complex reasons why hawkers mattered to London's histories are encapsulated in their voices. What do you mean by that? I like it, but what do you mean by it? In some ways, it's uh, it's difficult to answer because I think it sums up in the whole book, really. Because what I mean by that is that hawkers matter on all sorts of different levels. And it begins at the very mundane. It begins at the practical. So a hawker's cry in its its essence is a form of advertisement. They're trying to get your attention. They're trying to use their voice to sell their wares, to stop you, to say, I've got oysters, I've got potatoes, I've got cucumbers. Stop, buy what I've got. These are the particular characteristics of these foods. This is how much I'm selling for. So we have to always remember that the cries are fundamentally an aspect of their work, they're an aspect of labour, and more specifically, they're an aspect of retail. They're the equivalent of the swinging shop sign for a street. But for a person that does not have the shop, this is how they, they grab your attention, they, how they get your custom. But the other thing that they do is this relatively mundane, practical thing about their work has an impact on all sorts of other Londoners because it fills the streets with sensation, noise, and sound. We were talking about streets earlier as places of more than just movement, and they were places of sensation and stimulation that struck the senses in all sorts of ways. Hawkers brought taste to the street, they brought smells to the street, but primarily through their advertising calls, they brought sound. They had to try and catch the listener's ear over the top of all the other noises that are filling the streets of the city. Dogs barking, bells ringing, the chatter and hubbub conversation, doors slamming. This is all the things that you can hear within the city. There's just a little sample. And those sounds, in a time where people are used to being on the streets, were packed full of information as well. People can orientate themselves within the city by the sounds that they are hearing. For example, one of the more kind of picturesque indications that street sellers' calls offer is a sense of time, of passing time and of the seasons. So you might be able to hear in Hawker's cries the arrival of cherries in June and July as that soft fruit comes into season. And then around the same time of year, you start hearing cries for mackerel as well, a fish that's starting to appear in that early year. And as early part of the year, and then as the months roll on, the cries will change And so you'll hear kind of more festive foods towards Christmas and things like that. So the sounds hawkers are providing are full of information. But then, so we're gradually moving up from the practical to the the information-filled sound. There's another aspect of this as well. And it's something that I think is why street sellers resonate so much for us today, is that these cries in particular became a really potent source of myth and became embedded in popular culture 
And people today even still reminisce about the cries of their own towns and cities that they used to hear. It's always used to hear as well. They tend to be something that's disappeared when we feel particularly strong about them. And it's through their voices that Hawker, I think, took such a particularly powerful position within yeah, London culture. And within London memory. I was telling you before we began recording how my mother remembers cries from Hawker's in Philadelphia in the 60s, which by the time she told me about them in the 70s, I, that was, I never put the dates together as a, because I was a kid, but that was already a distant past. There were no hawkers like that anymore that I knew of. Yeah, um, but what's wonderful is that in London history, people were always reminiscing. They were always nostalgic about street cries too, even in periods when they would have heard them. They were always saying they used to be better. The streets were much more vibrant and resonant. And I think this is bound up too with this, I think, enduring notion that cities were all, we always feel often that the street, cities were always better in various ways. I think particularly in, in places that feel quite sanitized and comfortable, mm-hmm. that we have an idealized vision of urban life in the past. And some of that is bound up through sound, I think. It's those human voices, but human voices that are tuned and to a, for a particular purpose that really is going to strike us. It's not that people aren't, nostalgic for dogs barking necessarily they're not nostalgic for necessarily for the the clatter of kind of hooves and things like that because those things bring annoyances the idea that you could hear someone shouting down your street as they brought you some fresh walnuts or something like that as they appeared in your season is wonderfully evocative and i'm not sure how enduring this film is on your side of the atlantic but something that's really deeply embedded over here is the 1960s film version of Charles Dickens's Oliver Twist. You, do you know the film? Vaguely. No. Yeah, it's very central here, I think, to, to British culture. I mean, for lots, all sorts of kind of complicated ways. But it's also because it's set largely in, in London and there's a fabulous scene within the film in which the central character, Oliver, wakes up one morning in the very pristine house of his benefactor in a grand London square and he's woken by the cries of a particular kind of street vendor who's outside his window and he's drawn to the window and then he hears the cry of this hawker and then another cry from coming from another direction and then another one and all these hawkers cry someone selling strawberries someone selling milk someone selling flowers all coalesce and one of the musical numbers of the film comes together and it's a film that people still love and will watch on a regular basis here and it's got street cries at its core because I think they tap into something kind of very deep I think for for people within London memory or they I think maybe they offer a kind of direct kind of way in to something very essential for people. As we wrap up I feel compelled to ask you about sources and it's particularly as I was reading this about speaking of cries and speaking of telling the times of day, I did note on how you say at one point, up to 1825, I found 175 descriptions of hawking food, which indicate the time of day. And I made a note by that to ask you about that, because how many descriptions of hawking food have you read, Charlie Taverner? My eyes got big as I thought about that. Yeah. So a lot of this research started life as doctoral research. And one of the beauties of that is you hopefully have lots of time to spend relatively unproductively combing through sources and looking for snippets in which kind of small subjects are mentioned. 
Hawking is one of those topics that doesn't have an, it doesn't have its own archive. There's not somewhere you can readily go and find out all the information about kind of London hawkers. And one of my missions was to try and create a counter archive in some ways, gather together from all sorts of different locations, all the little mentions and snippets of these people, and then organize them in a way that enabled some kind of rigorous systematic analysis. So I spent kind of several years combing through different blocks of material where some of which the street selling was the point of why that's, that scrap of evidence was created. So for example, the records of London's mayor's court, which was one of the early low-level or magistrate's courts within the city, where people were doing minor infractions like blocking the street or selling stinking fish, were called up. And some of those people were street sellers, so I can find them in there. But then there's another bank of material where people like oyster sellers or fish sellers or fruit vendors appear just incidentally to the creation of the material. A wonderful resource I use that people can access for their own research for just interest is the digitised records of the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey is London's central criminal court and there were all sorts of trials which were written up in great detail in a regular publication. And you can go online to the Old Bailey online and search using kind of keyword search for little details which will then drag up all the court cases where these things are are important. And in lots of these cases, street sellers appear often as witnesses, bystanders. They'll say, I know I was standing outside this tavern selling my oysters when this thing happened. And that's really interesting for me as a historian of kind of economic life and social life. Because you've got a mention of someone who is just going about their business in a very unassuming way, but they just happen to be within this source. So I gathered together all these snippets as much as possible, some of them very long, some of them very short, and tried to build a kind of coherent picture out of who these people were. And this picture then, based on archival and printed original sources, could then be set against the much better known kind of material about who hawkers were, which includes visual prints, literary accounts that mention street selling, and also music of the period as well. And most famously of all, the kind of the source that most urban historians go to, which is the the kind of the records of city government, which do from time to time mention people like hawkers, but of course, only give one side of the picture. How did you collate this material? I assume that you just didn't scan it and put it into Word. Do you have have the, the Hawker database sitting on your computer? I do. <laughs> a lot of Microsoft Excel, which I know a lot of social and economic historians use. It's a very good way of capturing material in quite a kind of basic data set form. It still essentially is qualitative history, but it's gathering large amounts of qualitative material and trying to make sense of it. And I'm not trying to do any complex record linkage or anything like that, which requires a, a relational database and going in that direction. And so a lot of very large spreadsheets. And I, But I think That's important because that allows me to keep in mind that this gathering of material is always contingent and partial. And and the things that I've gathered, this isn't the definitive archive of street selling. There is never going to be one because it's in all sorts of sources that may never be examined or the odd mention of this person may never be the reason that this particular source comes into light. But it's a really, it's the, I think it's the most substantial effort at gathering this material that's probably been attempted. And it gives us a really kind of robust basis, I think, for at least seeing the bigger trends about who these people were 
what they were selling and what their lives might have been like. So how did coming to this from journalism, how did that, do you think, affect your approach? Am I wrong to see the fingerprints of that experience on the book? It's not just a this particular kind of journalism probably plays yeah. a role in it. Yeah, I, in a previous life, I worked as a uh, business and agricultural journalist. I think I fell into that particular specialism because I'm from a I'm from a background. I'm from a farming family in in, in southwest of England. I've grown up around cows. I've worked in a butcher shop. I've done all sorts of things related to the food, and so my relationship to kind of food and food selling has always been centered on the practical as much as anything else it starts there it starts with the fact that people need to eat and the food needs to be grown and needs to come from somewhere and I went away and did a history degree and then found myself in journalism and was actually then eventually drawn back to kind of food and agriculture as a subject that I was really interested in so when I returned then to to graduate study and then becoming a professional historian food was something that that really drew me and food through the lens of being the stuff of life, the stuff that we eat to survive. And I find it a brilliant topic because it allows you to take a subject and then refract your kind of gaze through it in many ways. Because food history is not just about food and its meaning in a high-fluting way. It's not about restaurants, no, just about restaurants and high-end eating. It's about, it's about agriculture and where the food comes from. It's about trade and how people buy and sell stuff. It's about people's identity and everything that's bound up with that. It's about cities. It's about the countryside. It's about transport as well. It's about animals. Um, it's about the environmental impact. It's about the use of resources. And it's deeply political as well. All these things, it's fundamentally, it's the stuff of politics because politics is really about the control of resources and who gets those within a society. So I find food history a great way into all sorts of other topics. Politics is about blocking the street and adjudicating who, if you're blocking the street, or should you, or did you, or all the rest of it, That's, which is a large part of the part of this book. Yeah, it's funny. I The food aspect of this book, I didn't immediately notice it when I looked at on in the catalog and reading it. I saw it as a sort of, I, I guess I was seeing it as a social history first and foremost, <laughs> because you're excavating, you're uncovering and showing up these little glimpses of lives that otherwise we wouldn't know about. Yeah, I, yeah. Just by people very overlooked in our sort of traditional records or misinterpreted by our traditional records, by the gentlemen walk by Hazlitt or gentlemen walkers around Victorian London. They just don't see these people. And the richness that we can see them when you put together some court reports and a few adjudicate and that and all of a sudden we have this view of this of these people that we wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. In some ways, this kind of history is not new at all. It's what a certain branch of English social historians have been doing for more than half a century. It's in the tradition, really, of E.P. Thompson and uh, making the English working class, this idea of giving people back their position kind of within history, giving them a certain degree of agency and allowing a kind of bottom-up vision of social life to emerge. But I think it's that kind of history, but it's that history with the kind of greater sensibility of everything that we've learned in the years since, particularly around kind of gender and how people's experiences are circumscribed by those kind of differences. And also using new forms of kind of technology that allow research that would not have been possible in, in decades previously, and particularly for little subjects like kind of food mm -hmm. and for ordinary people that would otherwise really not make any dent on the historical record because we have 
because we have both digitized historical material, which is easily searchable, but also computing technology, which allows us to readily transcribe and analyze large bodies of material and link it together in interesting ways. That makes kind of social history much more possible in many ways, different kinds of social history. So it's a really exciting time. There are always these stories to investigate and explore, and that's only much more kind of possible now. It's only going to get better with, we see some of the data sets that people are doing about the Peasants' Rebellion and other things and the sort of data mining you're able to do with those medieval records. Just can't wait until the 19th century sources or people start to collate and say, wow, look at the linkages that we can make that we just couldn't make before mm-hmm. until this level of technology and data science has arrived to benefit us. I mentioned this in the introduction, so I want to conclude with this. You're suggesting also a different way of thinking about urbanization, modernization, because of how street hawkers developed or didn't develop. That sounds very highfalutin. So could you just, but it's really important. And what do you mean? How, what can we learn about our received story, the commonly received story about urbanization, modernization? Why might that not be correct? Yeah. Modernization or modernity, these are quite kind of complex terms. And they generally suggest, in the most basic way, some kind of break from the past, clear break from the past. The idea of newness and modernity is about shattering of the kind of old kind of structures and forms. And though these ideas have been thoroughly challenged and developed by kind of historians, I think they still represent the general shape of the history of our big kind of towns and cities in the past. So the idea that you move from a kind of small kind of community-based, very strictly bounded old city towards some kind of sprawling complex kind of metropolis, which is much more harder to control. That is the overarching kind of paradigm still, I think, for how we see the development of a city in a city like London. And connected to that kind of change, you get improvements in things like paving, policing, lighting, street cleaning, these amenities that make city life easier and better and smoother. And these improvements then allow different forms of cultural life to emerge. The city becomes a place not just for humdrum activities like buying and selling the marketplaces that kind of was their raison d'etre in the first place, but they become the perfect site for all sorts of forms of cultural life from the playhouses to the department stores of the late 19th century, summed up in their kind of flashy lights in places like the West End. What I want to suggest in this book, however, is that this is a quite unhelpful way of structuring how we view kind of London's history. Because many of the features that we think of as classically modern, so the kind of the desire for unrestricted circulation, or for example, the idea that there might be worries about kind of women walking the streets and chaperoned. These kind of modern features were already very well established in the Elizabethan and Stuart eras. So in those ways, London looks thoroughly modern. And then in other ways, places in which London looks relatively backward, the limited improvements that are made in things like paving and lighting, and even policing. You have the formation of the Metropolitan Police in 1829. It's seen as this kind of great innovation. This, you finally have a great sprawling police system that can regulate street life in the city. And actually, the numbers of police are still relatively low and they're unable to affect a huge kind of, kind of difference in terms of keeping the streets in check. So in, in lots of facets, London doesn't look particularly advanced, even in the, the twilight of the Victorian era. And the modernity 
that we're really looking for, I think only really emerges definitively around the time of the First World War and thereafter. That's when the real breaks from the past comes, when you see things like the motor car suddenly upending city life in really dramatic ways. So my view is that in you have this very long period um, in which London remains a dangerous and difficult and tough place to live that looks thoroughly unmodern in many ways. And actually, maybe we need to look more about the continuities in big city life over this period, because those continuities had a really important impact on people's everyday experience. They're what we see when we look at how people got by on a daily basis. My guest today has been Charlie Taverner. He's author of Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London. Charlie, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to chat. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 